This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Volume 4. Chapter 45. State of Italy under the Lombards. Part 1. Read by Claude Banta. Reign of the Younger Justin. Embassy of the Avars. Their settlement on the Danube. Conquest of Italy by the Lombards. Adoption and reign of Tiberius. Of Maurice. State of Italy under the Lombards and the Exarchs. Of Ravenna. Distress of Rome. Character and pontificate of Gregory I. During the last years of Justinian, his infirm mind was devoted to heavenly contemplation, and he neglected the business of the lower world. His subjects were impatient of the long continuance of his life and reign, yet all who were capable of reflection apprehended the moment of his death, which might involve the capital in tumult and the empire in civil war. Seven nephews of the childless monarch, the sons or grandsons of his brother and sister, had been educated in the splendor of a princely fortune. They had been shown in high commands to the provinces and armies. Their characters were known, their followers were zealous, and, as the jealousy of age postponed the declaration of a successor, they might expect with equal hopes the inheritance of their uncle. He expired in his palace, after a reign of thirty-eight years, and the decisive opportunity was embraced by the friends of Justin, the son of Vigilantia. At the hour of midnight, his domestics were awakened by an importunate crowd who thundered at his door and obtained admittance by revealing themselves to be the principal members of the Senate. These welcome deputies announced the recent and momentous secret of the emperor's decease, reported or perhaps invented his dying choice to the best beloved and most deserving of his nephews, and conjured Justin to prevent the disorders of the multitude, if they should perceive, with the return of light, that they were left without a master. After composing his countenance to surprise, sorrow, and decent modesty, Justin, by the advice of his wife Sophia, submitted to the authority of the Senate. He was conducted with speed and silence to the palace. The guards saluted their new sovereign, and the martial and religious rites of his coronation were diligently accomplished. By the hands of the proper officers, he was invested with the imperial garments, red buskins, white tunic, and purple robe. A fortunate soldier, whom he instantly promoted to the rank of tribune, encircled his neck with a military collar. Four robust youths exalted him on a shield. He stood firm and erect to receive the adoration of his subjects, and their choice was sanctified by the benediction of the patriarch who imposed the diadem on the head of an orthodox prince. The hippodrome was already filled with innumerable multitudes, and no sooner did the emperor appear on his throne than the voices of the blue and the green factions were confounded in the same loyal acclamations. In the speeches which Justin addressed to the senate and people, he promised to correct the abuses which had disgraced the age of his predecessor, displayed the maxims of a just and beneficent government, and declared that, on the approaching calends of January, he would revive in his own person the name and liberty of a Roman consul. The immediate discharge of his uncle's debts, 
exhibited a solid pledge of his faith and generosity. A train of porters, laden with bags of gold, advanced into the midst of the Hippodrome, and the hopeless creditors of Justinian accepted this equitable payment as a voluntary gift. Before the end of three years, his example was imitated and surpassed by the Empress Sophia, who delivered many indigent citizens from the weight of debt and usury, an act of benevolence the best entitled to gratitude, since it relieves the most intolerable distress, but in which the bounty of a prince is the most liable to be abused by the claims of prodigality and fraud. On the seventh day of his reign, Justin gave audience to the ambassadors of the Avars, and the scene was decorated to impress the barbarians with astonishment, veneration, and terror. From the palace gate, the spacious courts and long porticos were lined with the lofty crests and gilt bucklers of the guards, who presented their spears and axes with more confidence than they would have shown in a field of battle. The officers who exercised the power, or attended the person of the prince, were attired in their richest habits, and arranged according to the military and civil order of the hierarchy. When the veil of the sanctuary was withdrawn, the ambassadors beheld the emperor of the east on his throne, beneath a canopy or dome, which was supported by four columns, and crowned with a winged figure of victory. In the first emotions of surprise, they submitted to the servile adoration of the Byzantine court, but as soon as they rose from the ground, Targetius, the chief of the embassy, expressed his freedom and pride of a barbarian. He extolled, by the tongue of his interpreter, the greatness of the Shagan, by whose clemency the kingdoms of the south were permitted to exist, whose victorious subjects had traversed the frozen rivers of Scythia, and who now covered the banks of the Danube with innumerable tents. The late emperor had cultivated, with annual and costly gifts, the friendship of a grateful monarch, and the enemies of Rome had respected the allies of the Avars. The same prudence would instruct the nephew of Justinian to imitate the liberality of his uncle, and to purchase the blessings of peace from an invincible people, who delighted and excelled in the exercise of war. The reply of the emperor was delivered in the same strain of haughty defiance, and he derived his confidence from the god of the Christians, the ancient glory of Rome, and the recent triumphs of Justinian. The empire, said he, abounds with men and horses, and arms sufficient to defend our frontiers, and to chastise the barbarians. You offer aid, you threaten hostilities, we despise your enmity and your aid. The conquerors of the Avars solicit our alliance. Shall we dread their fugitives and exiles? The bounty of our uncle was granted to your misery, to your humble prayers. From us you shall receive a more important obligation, the knowledge of your own weakness. Retire from our presence, the lives of ambassadors are safe, and if you return to implore our pardon, perhaps you will taste of our benevolence. On the report of his ambassadors, the Shagan was awed by the apparent firmness of a Roman emperor, of whose character and resources he was ignorant. Instead of executing his threats against the Eastern Empire, he marched into the poor and savage countries of Germany, which were subject to the dominion of the Franks. After two doubtful battles, he consented to retire, and the Austrasian king relieved the distress of his camp with an immediate supply of corn and cattle. 
Such repeated disappointments had chilled the spirit of the Avars, and their power would have dissolved away in the Sarmatian desert if the alliance of Alboin, king of the Lombards, had not given a new object to their arms and a lasting settlement to their wearied fortunes. While Alboin served under his father's standard, he encountered in battle, and transpierced with his lance, the rival prince of the Gepidae. The Lombards, who applauded such early prowess, requested his father, with unanimous acclamations, that the heroic youth, who had shared the dangers of the field, might be admitted to the feast of victory. You are not unmindful, replied the inflexible Audouin, of the wise customs of our ancestors. Whatever may be his merit, a prince is incapable of sitting at table with his father till he has received his arms from a foreign and royal hand. Alboin bowed with reverence to the institutions of his country, selected forty companions, and boldly visited the court of Turasund, king of the Gepidae, who embraced and entertained, according to the laws of hospitality, the murderer of his son. At the banquet, whilst Alboin occupied the seat of the youth whom he had slain, a tender remembrance arose in the mind of Turasund. How dear is that place! How hateful is that person! were the words that escaped, with a sigh, from the indignant father. His grief exasperated the national resentment of the Gepidae, and Cunimund, his surviving son, was provoked by wine or fraternal affection to the desire of vengeance. The Lombards, said the rude barbarian, resemble in figure and in smell the mares of our Sarmatian plains, and this insult was a coarse allusion to the white bands which enveloped their legs. Add another resemblance, replied an audacious Lombard, you have felt how strongly they kick. Visit the plain of Asfield, and seek for the bones of thy brother. They are mingled with those of the vilest animals. The Gepidae, a nation of warriors, started from their seats, and the fearless Alboin, with his forty companions, laid their hands on their swords. The tumult was appeased by the venerable interposition of Turisund. He saved his own honor and the life of his guest, and, after the solemn rites of investiture, dismissed the stranger in the bloody arms of his son, the gift of a weeping parent. Alboin returned in triumph, and the Lombards, who celebrated his matchless intrepidity, were compelled to praise the virtues of an enemy. In this extraordinary visit, he had probably seen the daughter of Cunimund, who soon after ascended the throne of the Gepidae. Her name was Rosamond, an appellation expressive of female beauty, and which our own history or romance has consecrated to amorous tales. The king of the Lombards, the father of Alboin no longer lived, was contracted to the granddaughter of Clovis, but the restraints of faith and policy soon yielded to the hope of possessing the fair Rosamond and of insulting her family and nation. The arts of persuasion were tried without success, and the impatient lover, by force and stratagem, obtained the object of his desires. War was the consequence which he foresaw and solicited, but the Lombards could not long withstand the furious assault of the Gepidae, who were sustained by a Roman army, and, as the offer of marriage was rejected with contempt, Albone was compelled to relinquish its prey, and to partake of the disgrace which he had inflicted on the house of Cunimund. When a public quarrel is envenomed by private injuries, a blow that is not mortal or decisive 
can be productive only of a short truce, which allows the unsuccessful combatant to sharpen his arms for a new encounter. The strength of Alboin had been found unequal to the gratification of his love, ambition, and revenge. He condescended to implore the formidable aid of the Shagan, and the arguments that he employed are expressive of the art and policy of the barbarians. In the attack of the Gepidae, he had been prompted by the just desire of extirpating a people whom their alliance with the Roman Empire had rendered the common enemies of the nations and the personal adversaries of the Shagan. If the forces of the Avars and the Lombards should unite in this glorious quarrel, the victory was secure and the reward inestimable. The Danube, the Hebrus, Italy, and Constantinople would be exposed without a barrier to their invincible arms. But if they hesitated or delayed to prevent the malice of the Romans, the same spirit which had insulted would pursue the Avars to the extremity of the earth. These specious reasons were heard by the Shagan with coldness and disdain. He detained the Lombard ambassadors in his camp, protracted the negotiation, and by turns alleged his want of inclination or his want of ability to undertake this important enterprise. At length he signified the ultimate price of his alliance, that the Lombards should immediately present him with the tithe of their cattle, that the spoils and captives should be equally divided, but that the lands of the Gepidae should become the sole patrimony of the Avars. Such hard conditions were eagerly accepted by the passions of Alboin, and as the Romans were dissatisfied with the ingratitude and perfidy of the Gepidae, Justin abandoned that incorrigible people to their fate, and remained the tranquil spectator of this unequal conflict. The despair of Cunimund was active and dangerous. He was informed that the Avars had entered his confines, but on the strong assurance that after the defeat of the Lombards these foreign invaders would easily be repelled, he rushed forwards to encounter the implacable enemy of his name and family, but the courage of the Gepidae could secure them no more than an honorable death. The bravest of the nation fell in the field of battle. The king of the Lombards contemplated with delight the head of Cunimund, and his skull was fashioned into a cup to satiate the hatred of the conqueror, or perhaps to comply with the savage custom of his country. After the victory, no further obstacle could impede the progress of the confederates and they faithfully executed the terms of their agreement. The fair countries of Wallachia, Moldavia, Transylvania, and the other parts of Hungary beyond the Danube were occupied without resistance by a new colony of Scythians, and the Dacian empire of the Shagan subsisted with splendor above two hundred and thirty years. The nation of the Gepidae was dissolved, but in the distribution of the captives, the slaves of the Avars were less fortunate than the companions of the Lombards, whose generosity adopted a valiant foe, and whose freedom was incompatible with cool and deliberate tyranny. One moiety of the spoil introduced into the camp of Alboin more wealth than a barbarian could readily compute. The fair Rosamond was persuaded, or compelled, to acknowledge the rights of her victorious lover, and the daughter of Cunimund appeared to forgive those crimes which might be imputed to her own irresistible charms. The destruction of a mighty kingdom established the fame of Alboin. 
in the days of charlemagne the bavarians the saxons and the other tribes of the teutonic language still repeated the songs which described the heroic virtues the valor liberality and fortune of the king of the lombards but his ambition was yet unsatisfied and the conqueror of the gepidae turned his eyes from the danube to the richer banks of the po and the tiber fifteen years had not elapsed since his subjects the confederates of narses had visited the pleasant climate of italy the mountains the rivers the highways were familiar to their memory the report of their success perhaps the view of their spoils had kindled in the rising generation the flame of emulation and enterprise their hopes were encouraged by the spirit and eloquence of alboin and it is affirmed that he spoke to their senses by producing at the royal feast the fairest and most exquisite fruits that grew spontaneously in the garden of the world no sooner had he erected his standard than the native strength of the lombard was multiplied by the adventurous youth of germany and scythia the robust peasantry of noricum and pannonia had resumed the manners of barbarians and the names of the gepidae bulgarians sarmatians and bavarians may be distinctly traced in the provinces of italy of the saxons the old allies of the lombards twenty thousand warriors with their wives and children accepted the invitation of alboin their bravery contributed to his success but the accession or the absence of their numbers was not sensibly felt in the magnitude of his host every mode of religion was freely practised by its respective votaries the king of the lombards had been educated in the air in hearsay but the catholics in their public worship were allowed to pray for his conversion while the more stubborn barbarians sacrificed a she-goat or perhaps a captive to the gods of their fathers the lombards and their confederates were united by their common attachment to a chief who excelled in all the virtues and vices of a savage hero and the vigilance of alboin provided an ample magazine of offensive and defensive arms for the use of the expedition the portable wealth of the lombards attended the march their lands they cheerfully relinquished to the avars on the solemn promise which was made and accepted without a smile that if they failed in the conquest of italy these voluntary exiles should be reinstated in their former possessions they might have failed if narses had been the antagonist of the lombards and the veteran warriors the associates of his gothic victory would have encountered with reluctance an enemy whom they dreaded and esteemed but the weakness of the byzantine court was subservient to the barbarian cause and it was for the ruin of italy that the emperor once listened to the complaints of his subjects the virtues of narses were stained with avarice and in his provincial reign of fifteen years he accumulated a treasure of gold and silver which surpassed the modesty of a private fortune his government was oppressive or unpopular and the general discontent was expressed with freedom by the deputies of rome before the throne of justinian they boldly declared that their gothic servitude had been more tolerable than the despotism of a greek eunuch and that unless their tyrant were instantly removed they would consult their own happiness in the choice of a master the apprehension of a revolt was urged by the voice of envy and detraction 
which had so recently triumphed over the merit of Belisarius. A new exarch, Longinus, was appointed to supersede the conqueror of Italy, and the base motives of his recall were revealed in the insulting mandate of the Empress Sophia, that he should leave to men the exercise of arms, and return to his proper station among the maidens of the palace, where a distaff should be again placed in the hands of the eunuch. I will spin her such a thread, and she shall not easily unravel, is said to have been the reply which indignation and conscious virtue extorted from the hero. Instead of attending a slave and a victim at the gate of the Byzantine palace, he retired to Naples, from whence, if any credit is due to the belief of the times, Narses invited the Lombards to chastise the ingratitude of the prince and people, but the passions of the people are furious and changeable, and the Romans soon recollected the merits, or dreaded the resentment, of their victorious general. By the mediation of the Pope, who undertook a special pilgrimage to Naples, their repentance was accepted, and Narses, assuming a milder aspect and a more dutiful language, consented to fix his residence in the capital. His death, though in the extreme period of old age, was unseasonable and premature, since his genius alone could have repaired the last and fatal error of his life. The reality, or the suspicion, of a conspiracy disarmed and disunited the Italians. The soldiers resented the disgrace and bewailed the loss of their general. They were ignorant of their new exarch, and Longinus was himself ignorant of the state of the army and the province. In the preceding years Italy had been desolated by pestilence and famine, and a disaffected people ascribed the calamities of nature to the guilt or folly of their rulers. Whatever might be the grounds of his security, Alboin neither expected nor encountered a Roman army in the field. He ascended the Julian Alps, and looked down with contempt and desire on the fruitful plains to which his victory communicated the perpetual appellation of Lombardy. A faithful chieftain and a select band were stationed at Forum Julii, the modern Fruili, to guard the passes of the mountains. The Lombards respected the strength of Pavia and listened to the prayers of the Trevisans. Their slow and heavy multitudes proceeded to occupy the palace and city of Verona, and Milan, now rising from her ashes, was invested by the powers of Alboin five months after his departure from Pannonia. Terror preceded his march. He found everywhere, or he left, a dreary solitude, and the pusillanimous Italians presumed without a trial that the stranger was invincible. Escaping to lakes, or rocks, or morasses, the affrighted crowds concealed some fragments of their wealth, and delayed the moment of their servitude. Paulinus, the patriarch of Achiella, removed his treasures, sacred and profane, to the Isle of Grotto, and his successors were adopted by the infant Republic of Venice, which was continually enriched by the public calamities. Honoridus, who filled the chair of St. Ambrose, had credulously accepted the faithless offers of a capitulation, and the archbishop, with the clergy and nobles of Milan, were driven by the perfidy of Alboin to seek a refuge in the less accessible ramparts of Genoa. Along the maritime coast, the courage of the inhabitants was supported by the facility of supply, the hopes of relief, and the power of escape. 
but from the Trentine Hill to the gates of Ravenna and Rome, the inland regions of Italy became, without a battle or a siege, the lasting patrimony of the Lombards. The submission of the people invited the barbarians to assume the character of a lawful sovereign, and the helpless exarch was confined to the office of announcing to the emperor Justin the rapid and irretrievable loss of his provinces and cities. One city, which had been diligently fortified by the Goths, resisted the arms of a new invader. And while Italy was subdued by the flying detachments of the Lombards, the royal camp was fixed above three years before the western gate of Ticinum or Pavia. The same courage which obtains the esteem of a civilized enemy provokes the fury of a savage, and the impatient besieger had bound himself by a tremendous oath that age and sex and dignity should be confounded in a general massacre. The aid of famine at length enabled him to execute his bloody vow, but as Alboin entered the gate, his horse stumbled, fell, and could not be raised from the ground. One of his attendants was prompted by compassion or piety to interpret this miraculous sign of the wrath of heaven. The conqueror paused and relented. He sheathed his sword, and, peacefully reposing himself in the palace of Theodoric, proclaimed to the trembling multitudes that they should live and obey. Delighted with the situation of a city, which was endeared to his pride by the difficulty of the purchase, the prince of the Lombards disdained the ancient glories of Milan, and Pavia, during some ages, was respected as the capital of the kingdom of Italy. The reign of the founder was splendid and transient, and, before he could regulate his new conquests, Alboin fell a sacrifice to domestic treason and female revenge. In a palace near Verona, which had not been erected for the barbarians, he feasted the companions of his arms. Intoxication was the reward of valor, and the king himself was tempted by appetite or vanity to exceed the ordinary measure of his intemperance. After draining many capacious bowls of ration or Falerian wine, he called for the skull of Cunimund, the noblest and most precious ornament of his sideboard. The cup of victory was accepted with horrid applause by the circle of the Lombard chiefs. "'Fill it again with wine!' exclaimed the inhuman conqueror. "'Fill it to the brim, carry this goblet to the queen, and request in my name that she would rejoice with her father.' In an agony of grief and rage, Rosamund had strength to utter, "'Let the will of my lord be obeyed!' and, touching it with her lips, pronounced a silent imprecation that the insult should be washed away in the blood of Alboin. Some indulgence might be due to the resentment of a daughter if she had not already violated the duties of a wife. Implacable in her enmity, or inconstant in her love, the queen of Italy had stooped from the throne to the arms of a subject, and Helmicus, the king's armor-bearer, was the secret minister of her pleasure and revenge. Against the proposal of the murder, he could no longer urge the scruples of fidelity or gratitude, but Helmicus trembled when he resolved the danger as well as the guilt, when he recollected the matchless strength and intrepidity of a warrior whom he had so often attended in the field of battle. He pressed and obtained that one of the bravest champions of the Lombards 
should be associated to the enterprise, but no more than a promise of secrecy could be drawn from the gallant Paradus, and the mode of seduction employed by Rosamond betrays her shameless insensibility both to honor and love. She supplied the place of one of her female attendants, who was beloved by Paradus, and contrived some excuse for darkness and silence, till she could inform her companion that he had enjoyed the queen of the Lombards, and that his own death, or the death of Alboin, must be the consequence of such treasonable adultery. In this alternative he chose rather to be the accomplice than the victim of Rosamond, whose undaunted spirit was incapable of fear or remorse. She expected, and soon found, a favorable moment, when the king, oppressed with wine, had retired from the table to his afternoon slumbers. His faithless spouse was anxious for his health and repose. The gates of the palace were shut, the arms removed, the attendants dismissed, and Rosamond, after lulling him to rest by her tender caresses, unbolted the chamber door, and urged the reluctant conspirators to the instant execution of the deed. On the first alarm, the warrior started from his couch. His sword, which he had attempted to draw, had been fastened to the scabbard by the hand of Rosamond, and a small stool, his only weapon, could not long protect him from the spears of the assassins. The daughter of Cunimund smiled in his fall. His body was buried under the staircase of the palace, and the grateful posterity of the Lombards revered the tomb and the memory of their victorious leader. End of chapter 45, part 1